The Bible from 30,000 feet, soaring through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And uh, would you join me as we pray? Father, we feel it necessary to pause before we begin, even though our worship songs have been, in effect, prayers to you, before you. But Father, we seek not just to understand a book of the Bible, uh, even though that's what we're doing, examining this book in a single setting. But we want far more than that. We certainly want more than just understanding the human author, Solomon, but we want to know your mind, the mind of Christ, um, the reason that you put this book in the Bible, what it has for us today, and because of its theme, Father, we just want to begin by praying for the marriages that are in our fellowship. We know that these relationships have been and are and will be under attack by the enemy and even by the world and its system around us. We know that norms and standards and values will change like the wind, but we also know Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, Lord, as we are committed to the unswerving principles that are found in Scripture, we just pray that we might gain more insight into Scripture. And especially who you are in relationship to who we are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Welcome to what Dr. J. Vernon McGee called the most neglected book in Scripture. It is a mysterious book for some. It is an enigma. And I say that because all you have to do is look at the interpretive history of this book. That is, the years and years that commentators and interpreters, Jewish and Christian, have looked at this book and tried to ascertain why it was written, what is its meaning, and you will find all sorts of disagreement. I hope in part to overturn some of the mystery, uh, and, and uh, hopefully you will understand it. I had one of the guys uh, in the worship team just saying, I can't wait to get into the Song of Solomon. I've read parts of it, don't quite get it or understand it, so I'm hoping that this will change for some. Uh, there are, are people who view this book as simply an allegory. That is, it's words that don't mean what they say they mean. They mean something far different. So it's an allegory. And, and the ancient Jewish rabbis even believed that this is simply an allegory of God's love for his nation, the nation of Israel. Others view the book as an extended type. Now, you know what a type is in the Bible. You have one thing or one person as a type of another thing or another person. We can safely say that a Joseph is a type of Christ, that the lamb is a type of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament sacrificial lamb. There are many types. And some 
in the Christian church have seen this as an extended typology of Christ's love for his church, the bridegroom, Jesus, the bride, the church. I think it's okay to acknowledge that Jesus Christ as our bridegroom um, loves the bride, but I don't think you can derive that principally from what this book was written for in its original intent. Of course, Solomon would not even know what a church was or who the Messiah would be. But it has been seen as sort of an extended type. Others see the book of the Song of Solomon as a drama, a poetic drama between two principal characters, Solomon and his bride. I fall into that category, and I think you'll see why. The plain rendering of the text, I think, leads you to see this poetic expression written by Solomon for his bride and writing back her response in a poetic fashion. So it is a poetic drama. Then there are others who just see this as a collection of Syrian wedding poems all put together. Just kind of a mishmash of poetry from different times and, and from that general area all stuck together. So this is why McGee called it the most neglected book of the Bible. Now that was when he was alive and when he was writing books. Since McGee went to heaven, I don't know if you even know who J. Bernard McGee is. Some of us do because we were sort of spiritually raised by him, with him on the radio, and he spoke here many, many years ago. But since McGee has gone to heaven, I would say Song of Solomon has become a very popular book. There are churches who decided um, uh, to use that as sort of their flagship study on marital intimacy, a prolonged study on sexuality, and they use the Song of Solomon as their template. So saying it's the most neglected book, uh, I'm not so sure about anymore. One of the most misunderstood books, yes, I would agree with that. You will notice how the book begins in verse 1. It says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Because of chapter 1, verse 1, there are two titles. Either one is appropriate. Either the Song of Songs, that's its ancient title, or the Song of Solomon, its more modern title. Doesn't matter because both are appropriate because of verse 1. Solomon wrote it, so it is the Song of Solomon, but it is also called the Song of Songs. Now, what does that mean? Well, whenever you find a word repeated with the preposition of in the middle of those repeated words, you're dealing with a superlative in the language. It's the song of all songs, the most important song. Just like you would have the king of kings or the lord of lords or the holy of holies. You have the word repeated twice with the preposition of in the middle of it. That indicates a superlative nature. So this is, of all the songs that Solomon wrote, this is his song of songs. You should know by now that Solomon was very prolific as an author. And he wrote lots of Proverbs and he wrote songs. The Bible says he wrote 1,005 songs. Only one of them has survived, and this is it. And it, it's good that it has, because it's his best song. 
All you need is one good song to to launch your career. So he is a one-hit wonder, man. And this song survived. This is his superlative work. This is his song of songs. This poetic drama, this song, also said in the cadence of Hebrew parallelism, if you remember back in our previous studies. This one is mainly between two people, although there are other parties involved, at least uh, three altogether. I would even concede more. But it's principally between two people, Solomon and a girl. A girl from the town of Shunem, uh, called here the Shulamite Bride. Now, Shunem is a little town in the northern part of Israel, what we would call today Lower Galilee. And when you come with us to Israel next time, uh, we're going to be in there February and March next year, Remind me when we're on the um, mount overlooking Nazareth and the Armageddon Valley. Uh, remind me to point out Shunem to you. I can see it in my mind's eye, but when you stand there, I'll point it out to you. It's on a little hill, and you can see the little modern village today. She was from that region up north in what will be called the Valley of Armageddon, in ancient times the Valley of Jezreel. Solomon, of course, is from Jerusalem. And this is his relationship with this Shunammite girl. Now, there's only one problem with this book, this girl in this book. You read about it and you go, man, this guy loves this chick to the max. Wow, what a lucky girl. Well, maybe at first. Because this is the Song of Songs, because it is Scripture, we can't be sure. But many scholars believe this is Solomon's first wife. Let's clear that up. It's before he married 699 other gals. And made a mess of his life. So it would make sense. And and yet it makes this story a little more heartbreaking, doesn't it? Because here's this girl saying, you're the only one. And Solomon saying, you're the only one. And yet she wasn't the only one. He will have a thousand women altogether. With wives and concubines. But it could be this is his first wife. And if that is the case... And I tend to lean in that direction. We have before us God's original intention in marriage. This is what he intended it to be. Before you add the 699 others. This is just that one that God, that God called. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife. The two shall become one flesh. We can't be certain again. We're dealing with ancient poetry. But it would seem as if the book covers about a year's time to two years' time. It covers an engagement or a courtship, um, a wedding ceremony, uh, the honeymoon, and into the marriage a little bit, even the resolution of a conflict that they have, and then their commitment toward a lifelong relationship. It takes place in two places. As I mentioned, up north in Shunem, the Jezreel Valley, and down south in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of peace, 
uh, where Solomon's palace was. I think the best way to look at this book without seeing it as an allegory or an extended type or a collection of Syrian wedding songs, just a straightforward interpretation of this is a man's love for his wife and his commitment and God's intention for romantic love. As we get into this book, I want to confess that I envy Adam somewhat. He had it easy. He didn't have to search or wonder, who is the right girl for me? Right? It was just him. And it says, the Lord created a woman and brought the woman to the man. So it's like there weren't any chicks. God made one and then put her right in front of his nose. So he, if he was the most idiotic person on earth, he could go, I think that's God's will for my life. <laughs> he could figure that out pretty easily. We don't have that luxury, do we? It'd be nice, wouldn't it? If you got a knock on the door, angel of God, special delivery, wife for so-and-so, awesome. But we have a process we go through. And in our culture, it's, it's, it's what we do, but it's not the best process. It's called dating, which usually involves hiding who you really are, putting on your best look, putting your best foot forward, and conning the other person into liking you. And then really finding out who you are after you say, I do. <laughs> Things were far different in the ancient Near East. When, when marriages were planned by people who had experience, and it was done in a very public setting and in a very accountable setting, and that is the setting we are dealing with. Now, I mentioned there's three parts of this song. There's the engagement, the wedding, and the marriage. Let me give it to you in chapters. Chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 5, is that engagement, that courtship. They're getting to know each other. It gets serious. Then in chapter 3, verse 6, down to chapter 5, verse 1, we have the wedding, including the wedding procession, the bedchamber, uh, the wedding night, the honeymoon night, and you, let me just warn you in advance, if you've not read the Song of Solomon, this book in some parts is rated R for realistic. And then there is number three, the marriage. That's chapter 5, verse 2, all the way to the end of chapter 8. We have seen before us what God put in nutshell form in Genesis, leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Leave father and mother, leave one relationship, join to another, and weave threads of intimacy throughout a lifetime. That's God's intention. So, verse 1, chapter 1, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Immediately now in verse 2, the girl, that girl from Shunem, this country bumpkin, uh, the Shulamite soon-to-be bride, speaks, and she speaks to herself. She says, let me let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Now, the Shulamite girl is attracted to Solomon 
But she wants Solomon to initiate. She's talking to herself. She goes, oh, man. I'd like to get into a closer relationship with this guy, but I don't want to chase her. I want him to initiate. So look at verse 4. Draw me away. That's the plea. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Who are they? They are all of the other women who want to marry Solomon. They are the daughters of Jerusalem, they will be mentioned. Now, daughters of Jerusalem in this text will be used frequently. And when it is used, it is either women in the court of Solomon who are servant girls or simply just all the girls, the single girls in Jerusalem. They're the daughters of Zion, the daughters of Jerusalem, the female population of the city. Um, You'll notice in verse 3, your name is ointment poured forth. In the Old Testament especially, when you, when you see the word name, it stands for not just what a person uh, is called, Solomon in this case, but what is behind the name, the character of the person. That's, that embodies the name. What attracts this girl to this man at first is his character. Looks are temporary. A character lasts forever. You look at somebody and go, wow, she's a knockout. Okay, now get to know her. She may be a knockout in her character, or she, she might want to knock you out. <laughs> and you could marry her, and you're going to want somebody to knock you out. So, the way a person looks is the initial attraction. It's the hook. It's the bait. And that's good. God in intended that. He created that, by the way. But a personality you have to live with for a long time. She notices his character. Your name is ointment poured forth. Some of the best wedding advice I ever heard put in quip form goes like this. Keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. It's good advice. Learn as much as you can beforehand. Then afterwards, you just sort of have to close them a little bit and ignore some of the idiosyncrasies. Let it pass. Let it go. Let go of it. Don't hold on to the grudge and move on. She continues talking to herself and, and about herself. I am dark. But lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar. Kedar is Saudi Arabia, that area, the Arabian Peninsula. The tents of Kedar were made by nomads, nomadic groups who lived in the area, and wove their tents with black hair, the black wool of, of the black goats of the area. So the tents of Kedar were black nomadic tents. If you go to Israel, when you go to Israel, we can show you some of these tents still in use by the Bedouins. The tents of Kedar, the black tents. So she says, I'm dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. What she means is, I've gotten a tan from working out in the sun. Now, she says this almost apologetically because did you know in ancient times it wasn't cool to have a tan? It's now cool 
It's like, ooh, you, you're all suntan. You look like, you look relaxed and, and, and good with that tan. Back then it was sort of a shame because it meant you weren't, you had to work menial jobs. You had to work outside. And so she's sort of apologizing for the fact that she's been in the sun working. Um, if you read on, and we will, it seems like her brothers, her stepbrothers, made her work outside. Uh, verse 6, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyard. But my own vineyard I have not kept. So she's sort of giving us insight into her home life. She's had to tend the vineyard in her family up north in that area of Shunem, the hill country of Shunem. But she's self-conscious about her appearance. She has worked hard outside tending the vineyard of her family, but she hasn't tendered, tended her own vineyard, meaning her own personal appearance. She's been unable to attend to herself. It's funny, not funny, it's, it's human nature that we are self-conscious about how we look. We are. We, it's why we have mirrors in every bathroom I've ever seen in this country. We have mirrors. And in many cases, we have them scattered throughout the house just in case between the bathroom, the bedroom, and the living room, we didn't check ourselves out enough. We make sure they're everywhere. And then when we get in the car, it's like... <laughs> so we are a self-conscious species. Um, one of our problems is we compare ourselves to others. And we have it bad in our modern day and age with our modern ability to watch so many movies and soap operas and see stuff on social media. Uh, they've done study after study, researchers have determined that the more one watches TV, movies, soap operas, etc., um, music videos, the more self-conscious and dissatisfied they become with their own looks. It's because they're seeing a standard, a model, of what is considered beautiful or handsome. And because it is played so often, and we see it so often, because we, we are not that, um, we become very self-conscious about our bodies. She says, verse 7, Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock. It could be, I can't prove it, but it could be that Solomon is interested in this girl but went incognito disguising himself into this vineyard, attracted to this girl. Maybe it was his property that he leased to her family, thought she's a good-looking gal. So he disguised himself so she would know it's the king, and uh, she doesn't know it's the king at first. So she says, tell me, you, uh, oh, you whom I love, where do you feed your flock? You seem to look like a shepherd, disguised as a shepherd. Where do you make it rest at noon? For why should I be as one who veils herself, meaning a prostitute? Prostitutes will, will cover themselves and then pursue a man. Why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? So here's the deal. She wants to know this guy, but she doesn't want to chase this guy. That's what prostitutes do. 
She, she wants, again, him to initiate, and she is saying that she values her own purity. One of the common pitfalls, since we're talking about relationships, in people getting married or getting married a second time is moving too quickly, deciding too quickly. Feeling convinced that this is the love of my life, I've never met anybody like this. You, you, you do it very, very quickly. You don't want to um, uh, uh, cover the time it takes to have that relationship evaluated by people who are wise and are your friends and who will scrutinize and will ask questions. And so um, people rebound very, very quickly after a divorce or after a death of a spouse or they get married the first time very, very quickly. If a couple says they're ready for marriage after two weeks, I'm leery. Or a month, I'm leery. I'm not saying it hasn't worked out like that. I've seen a few times where it really has worked out, but very rarely. It is the exception rather than the rule. It is much easier to get into a relationship than it is to live with a relationship. Easiest thing in the world is to get into a relationship. And you can do that in a couple hours. But then living with the relationship is another issue. There was a study done at Kansas State University about couples, and they noted a correlation between the length of time a couple spends in dating and marital satisfaction afterward. They said, and I'm quoting, couples who had dated for more than two years scored consistently high on marital satisfaction, while couples who had dated for shorter periods scored in a wide range from very high to very low. This is the initial part of their relationship. Now it gets more serious. Now the dating courtship relationship begins. We would say they're going steady. Solomon speaks in verse 9. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. You're like a horse. Now, we do laugh at that because, you know, this guy needs some help in dating. He needs some communication 101 classes. You don't start by saying, honey, you remind me of Mr. Ed. You, you're like a horse. But you got to remember something. One of Solomon's great loves as king was horses. He collected them. He had stables all over the country. And for a guy like Solomon, who was a purveyor of fine horses... He's saying, like, you stand alone among all of the women of the world. You are the cream of the crop. So I'll compare you to a filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Verse 10, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. Now the Shulamite bride speaks, or the the girl he's dating, who will be his bride. Verse 12. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Back in the day, 
in the Old Testament day, before there was perfumes and colognes, to smell good and to cover up the vineyard smell, right? You've been working in the vineyard all day, and you got the smell of earth mixed with dung for fertilizer. So you're going out on a date. You got to do something. So they would wear a little sachet of, uh, of blossoms, uh, flowers, or in this case, myrrh. Myrrh is a gum that comes out of a plant in the Arabian Peninsula. And it does smell gore. It's beautiful. And it, and it covers up. So uh, he, he, she's basically saying, I smell good and I love your cologne. It would be more of a modern translation. Um, My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms, white flowers, in the vineyards of En Gedi. Now, En Gedi is in the desert. And when you go to Israel with us, we'll go to En Gedi. And it's, it's barren desert, but flowers can grow in the area. So what she's saying to him is uh, all other guys that I've seen are like the desert. You are like that beautiful garden of flowers in the midst of the desert. You are singular. That also is a compliment. Now Solomon speaks uh, and They're speaking to each other in more intimate terms in the next little bit of a discourse. Verse 15, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. So, um, again, we read that and we go, huh? And you remind me of a horse and you look like a bird. (laughs) You got bird eyes. Um... It doesn't sound romantic to us, but I did a little reading on doves. And one of the interesting characteristics of a dove, though they do have sort of peaceful looking eyes, and in antiquity, a a dove was a complimentary bird uh, to be called that. But but doves, um, the way they move and the way they focus their eyes, they can only focus on one thing at a time. So it's like saying, I know that you have eyes only for me. When you say, you have dove's eyes, you're saying, I know that you have a singular look. You don't notice everybody else. You're noticing just me. It's a beautiful, beautiful description. You have eyes for me only. Now the girl speaks. The Shulamite speaks. Verse 16, behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. They are now outside. They're out in the countryside. Um, Their bed is green. They're probably having a picnic out in a green grassy field. And above them are fir trees. So it's like a cathedral uh, with beams of cedar, the trees all around them. It feels like a castle. Now chapter 2, verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house. The banqueting house is up in Jerusalem. And his banner over me was love. So they were in the country at a picnic. But now he brings her out in public. And as he brings her out in public, he is willing to be identified with her in public. So the commitment is deepening when it says, He brought me to the banqueting house. Now Solomon is speaking to these girls, either servant girls in his palace or just the the female population of Jerusalem called daughters of Jerusalem. Verse 7, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. You know what that phrase means? 
It means love has its place and love has its time, but don't stimulate love prematurely. And it's good wisdom. Let love have its growth, have its blossom, but, but produce roots so the relationship will last. Now, as they're getting to know each other and they're, they're longing for each other and they're longing to be kissed and longing to get intimate, they're also realizing that love, to be right, has to blossom in the right place and at the right time. So here's the principle. God gave you your hormones and God gave you your pheromones. And I love that he did. I love the fact that there is within the construct of the nerve ending the ability to inhale and chemicals are released and you're breathing in pheromone chemicals that make you more attracted to one person over another because of the way they smell, either their perfume or cologne or just body odor or whatever it is. And so I love the fact that God put hormones and pheromones within us as part of the process. It's quite pleasant. The sexual impulse is God-given. But because it is God-given, it must be God-guided. If the sexual impulse, which is God-given, is not God-guided, you will find yourself in a heap of trouble. Because again, beauty is fading. Personality lasts a lifetime. I've often likened the sexual impulse to fire, fire in a fireplace. You put wood in a fire, the last couple days it's been cold, it's kind of nice. Uh, we have an outdoor fireplace, I threw some wood in there, it's kind of nice to be warmed. But if I decide to take the burning wood out of the fireplace and put it on my couch in the living room, now that which was beautiful in its context is now out of its context and quite ugly and quite destructive. So fire in the fireplace is good. Fire outside the fireplace can destroy. Sexual impulse is beautiful in its context. Out of its context, it can and it will destroy. Proverbs 5, I'll throw back to that, which we already covered. Proverbs 5, verse 15 through 18. Solomon said, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Good counsel, godly counsel. I only wish Solomon would himself have followed that his whole life. The point is this. Sex in a marriage... Did that just cut out? Okay. Sex in a marriage is like drinking pure water from a well. Sexual sin is like drinking polluted water from a sewer. That's the analogy of that proverb, Proverbs chapter 5. One will delight you, one will destroy you. One is a river, one is a swamp. Verse 14, I like this. Oh, my dove. He called her dove eyes already, but oh, my dove. In the, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Doves that are in the clefts of the rocks, they're hiding. You need to, if you want them to come out, you need to coax them out. 
And I think the idea is, here is Solomon trying to get her to come out of the cleft of the rock. Here is a man really wanting to know who this woman is. So the relationship can be tethered and can be deepened. He's trying to draw her out and know everything about her. You know, Peter said, husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. Meaning, men, if you're married to a a wife, you need to become an expert in her. You need to study that woman. Um, I should become a lenyologist. I should have studied her so well that I know what makes her tick. I know what she likes. I shouldn't be surprised at this time by a reaction because you dwell with that woman with understanding. Learn as much as you can. And in the dating relationship, learn as much as you can. Don't let it be a con job. Don't let it be put my best foot forward. No, put your worst foot forward so they can see the worst part of you. So they can work it out. Because it's better to find out now and work through it if you can and are willing to, rather than find out later, oh, that's who you really are. Verse 15, catch the foxes. The little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. In other words, I don't want anything to ruin this relationship. Foxes can come into a vineyard, into any crop that is grown, and can be very destructive if let loose. So chase the foxes away. Um, In your relationship with your spouse, foxes of impurity, foxes of mistrust, of unresolved conflict. Uh, I've discovered in looking at a lot of marriages that uh, a a divorce or a separation uh, is a slow leak. Seldom a blowout, almost always a slow leak. And you just let it go and go and go and go, and pretty soon it's gone. So catch the foxes while you can. You know, identify this problem, work through it, deal with it. Don't let it slide. Um, Resolve the issue. They're going to have a conflict in a little bit, and that's the idea. Catch the foxes before they cause the conflict and the destruction. Like Martin Luther used to say, you can't stop birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. Same principle. So that's the engagement or the courtship. Now comes the wedding. Chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1. This is the wedding procession. Uh, This gal is picked up at her home and she is taken now to Jerusalem in Solomon's entourage. Chapter 3, verse 6, she says, Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? What does that mean? She's looking in the horizon and she's seeing either incense coming out of the the, 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 the entourage of chariots, or it's simply just the dust that is kicked up by the wheels of the chariot as you look at it on the horizon. Perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders. Behold, or check it out. That's how I like to translate it. Check it out. It's Solomon's couch. The portable covered throne of Solomon is coming to pick her up. Solomon isn't in there. He's up He's down in Jerusalem, but he's sending, you know, the the limo to pick her up. So behold, it's Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it. That's quite a bodyguard. But they have to make quite a journey from up north to down south, so you have an army to protect that would-be bride of Solomon. 
Verse 8, they all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has a sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. So these valiant men, we would call them in the New Testament friends of the bridegroom. But because they are the king's friends, uh, they are valiant fighting men. They are soldiers. They are well-equipped. They are well-armed. They are the bodyguards Solomon has sent to protect that bride uh, going all the way down through the Jordan Valley to Jerusalem. And it can get tricky. Um, it was even in the New Testament times. When you go from Jericho to Jerusalem, you go through some of those narrow passes, and that's where robbers come and get you. That's why Jesus gave the parable. A man went from Jericho to Jerusalem, or Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves. The parable of the Good Samaritan. So some of those passageways is the very way this girl is going to travel, and Solomon wants to make sure she's protected. It's a beautiful snapshot of a marriage relationship and the role of the husband as the protector. It was Matthew Henry, an old Bible commentator, who used to say, Woman was not taken from man's head to be above him, nor was she taken from man's foot to be beneath him, walked on by him, but she was taken from his side to be protected by him. From under his arm, near to his heart, to be loved by him. Verse 9, of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. A palanquin is a covered chair or a chariot. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold. You know, she's checking out the limo, basically. Too. Nice wheels. You know, inside and outside, she's checking out the exterior, the interior, support of gold, seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. You see, she recognizes who he is. She has an understanding. I'm just not marrying a dude, a, a shepherd. I've discovered this shepherd who came into my vineyard is actually the king of the nation, of the 12 tribes. And as the king, he has a certain status and therefore a certain responsibility. And I understand that I'm married to him and I understand that he has responsibilities that will take him away from home. Um, uh, responsibilities of, as, as um, uh, presiding over the court, etc. I know what I'm getting into, and I know it's not going to be easy kind of sharing him with the nation, but she is recognizing that she is marrying somebody of great importance. Um, I always love what Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, both now in heaven, but Ruth uh, did remark when she was interviewed a couple times that Billy Graham, her husband, the famous evangelist, was sometimes in the olden days before airplane travel when they traveled by ship, often gone seven months out of a year. Hard on any marriage. I wouldn't even advise that in any marriage. But they did it. They had an understanding of God's call on both their lives. And uh, she said, I admit, in an interview, I admit that I'm often lonely apart from my husband. And so what I do is I go into his closet and I take some of his clothes, like a sports coat or a suit, and I'll often sleep with it. Just so I have his scent there. Those pheromones. 
I there smell his cologne and I smell his scent. And she, you know, as, as the press was prodding and probing, oh, that's hard. And, and, you know, have you ever wanted to divorce him? She said, listen, I would rather have Billy Graham 50% of the time than any other man in the world 100% of the time. I thought that was a good answer. I know what I'm getting into. I know the calling of God in his life. I know it's not easy for him or for me. But that's the calling of God. And I'm willing to share him with the world. I'd rather have him half-time than anybody else full-time. So I think that's sort of in the language here as she recognizes what this marriage is going to be. Now we come in the wedding to the wedding night. This is where some guys go, oh, I love this part. It's the consummation of the marriage. It's a very um, um, plain description of the marriage bed. And you know what? I'm glad it's in the Bible. It might make some of you blush. So be it. Maybe you need to blush. Maybe you need to get over the fact that God invented sex. And he has it for our pleasure within the right context. Well, chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. There he goes again. Behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, goats, what color are they? No, not sheep. Goats. Okay, the, the goats that make the tents of Kedar, what color are they? So what color was her hair? Very good. So your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead, the flowing network of landscape that comes down from that northern mountain peak. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. <laughs> he doesn't mean you have hairy teeth. I just wanted to say that, hairy teeth, because that just sounds so gross. So, so sheep, sheep are pretty gross, especially before they're shorn, and they're pretty like discolored and kind of grayish, brownish. But once you cut all that back, brilliant white underneath. So you have beautiful um, white teeth, which have come from washing. So you brush your teeth. Uh, each one of them bears twins, so you've got symmetry to your smile. None of them is barren among them, so they're clean, white, straight, and none of them are missing. <laughs> no partials, no dentures. You're good to go. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, beautifully shaped red lips. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. You have high cheekbones and, and ruby-colored. He's... Was that like... You're stoked on that. Somebody was stoked on that. Okay. <laughs> Your neck is like, the, just, just wait. Right? Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which have hung a thousand bucklers, all the shields of mighty men. So he lifts up her veil, caresses her hair, and you'll see in the next couple of verses, he, the husband, undresses his bride. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. This is their wedding night. This is their lovemaking. Please notice how gently he speaks to her. He's not rough. He's sweet. He's tender. He caresses her. He praises her. He is very gentle with her. When it comes to um, 
sexual attraction and lovemaking, this might help. Men are microwaves. <laughs> Women are crockpots. For a gal, it takes a while to build up that intimate desire. For a guy, ready to go right now. Right? They're, they're like, the microwave just went on and off. Um, for a woman, and I think Solomon under, understands this in the poetry of this book, romance begins early in the day. Now, once again, if you think that God is some stuffy prude, just read through this a couple times on your own. You, you will see that, wow, this is God's invention. C.S. Lewis made that point, that God invented pleasure. It's the, uh, he said it's the invention of God, not the devil. Uh, in Genesis, it says God made them male and female, and they were both naked and what? Not ashamed. Adam and Eve were not ashamed. Neither should you be husbands and wives in the presence of your spouse. Um, however, I've told you the story of my honeymoon and my, uh, my wife's grandfather getting us the honeymoon suite in Ventura, California. And we opened the door to see uh, gold cherubs and pink and red and gold wallpaper that was... Um, this weird texture and a mirror over the bed and it was like <laughs> it was so hard to just not do that so a little bit embarrassing verse 12 a garden enclosed is my sister my spouse a spring shut up a fountain sealed you know what this means it means this woman saved herself for marriage she put up a wall. Nothing could penetrate that wall. She was inaccessible to other men. In other words, I married a virgin. And he's praising her for that. Her body was sealed. Now we're starting to get a little bit of frame of God's will in relationship. Simply put, it's abstinence until marriage, fidelity within marriage, and then the enjoyment of marriage. Have at it. The marriage bed is undefiled, the writer of Hebrews said. Have a great time. Chapter 5, verse 1, the second part of it. I just want to show this to you because it's an enigmatic phrase and many commentators skip over it. I don't want to do that. Eat, O friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Who's talking and to whom? We don't know. Some believe it's Solomon speaking to his friends like, hey, I'm going to go enjoy my wife. You go enjoy the meal, the wedding feast. Drink deeply. Have, have all the chicken and steak you want. It's on me. Or some think it's his friends saying this to Solomon and his bride, like go in and enjoy the, the marriage bed. Here's another thought. Some believe this is the one place where God is speaking to the couple, saying, I've created this. I've ordained this. Now go enjoy this. Eat, O oh friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O oh beloved ones. Did you know that there is plenty of research that says the more spiritually committed a couple is, the more sexual enjoyment they have in a marriage? According to Red Book Magazine, this is just one survey. I have family life seminars and others don't have the time to, to share them with you. Here's just one. Um, 
Red Book Magazine, borrowing the research, a sexual pleasure survey was showing the preferences of 100,000 different women, noted, and I quote, sexual satisfaction is related significantly to religious belief with notable consistency. The greater the intensity of a woman's religious convictions, the likelier she is to be highly satisfied with the sexual pleasures of marriage, end quote. Solomon recognizes this, and perhaps God is affirming this in this statement. Can't be sure it's the Lord speaking, but it is in the Bible. So as you read it and apply it, you could take this as the Lord's word to you. Uh, You with your wife, you with your husband. Uh, Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Now we get the final swath of this, and I want to move quickly here. This is the marriage. Chapter 5, verse 1 is still the honeymoon. In verse 2 of chapter 5, the honeymoon is over. She says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of night. This gal obviously is having a rough night. She's not sleeping. She's tossing and turning. Something is bothering her. Some unresolved conflict, it would seem. Because Solomon comes. He comes home maybe earlier than expected. He's in a romantic mood. Open the door, baby. (laughs) She's not feeling it. Verse 3. Listen to her excuse. This is her, her husband. She says, I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? Really? You couldn't stumble in the dark to find your bathrobe? How hard is that? I mean, that's that's a big impediment. Okay. I've taken my robe off. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? You would agree this is less than an enthusiastic response toward her husband? Now, let me use this as a jumping off point. Men, when there is unresolved conflict in a relationship, your wife will not be in a romantic mood. That's not the time for love to blossom, right? So in that instance, when there's unresolved conflict, a sexual advance will not be well received by her. She wants to resolve the conflict first. She will not see you as a hunk of hunk of burning love. She wants you to sit down, give her eye contact, and deal with the problem. Obviously, that has not happened. Verse 4, my beloved put his hand on the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. So she unlocked the door, and he bolted. Sorry, pun intended. Uh, my, My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I couldn't find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. So by the time she gets around to opening the door and looks around in the hallway, he's gone. Verse 8, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, she says, that you tell him I am lovesick. Now, I want you to understand something. Conflict is so normal in a relationship that two chapters of this book are devoted to conflict and the resolution of the conflict. Chapter 5 and 6 is about a conflict and the resolution set out in poetic stance. 
So 25% of the book is devoted to conflict resolution. That should tell you the conflict is pretty normal in a relationship. And resolution takes up a whole lot of real estate and time to get it right. So I'm just looking at, if you just look at the map of this book and, and determine 25% is conflict and conflict resolution, you go, wow, that's, that, that's, that could be an indication of how much there will be in my marriage. Now you have conflict in your marriage for two reasons. Actually, for several of them. Can I just give you two to start? And then we'll stop and move on. Number one, because you're human. So you're fallen. A marriage is two sinners that are committed for life. How easy is that? So you're human. And number two, you're different. Opposites attract. You are different. It's what brought you together. But because you're a human and because you are different, you will have conflict. You cannot have two strong-willed, independent people who merge their streams together without volatility and currents. You're going to have some upset. Chapter 6 is the resolution. Just look down at chapter 6, verse 3. She's now saying, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Chapter 6, verse 4 is the return of Solomon. Uh, from verse 4 onward, they start not speaking about each other or to the daughters of Jerusalem. They're now speaking to each other. And as they're speaking to each other and the conflict gets resolved, they end up using the same mushy language that they used back in chapter 4. So they get back to a good space and a good place. They're obviously fixing it. Um, I would sum it up by saying they've walked through their difficulties, they've worked out their differences, and love has won the day. That's the goal in a conflict. You know, there is a goal. When you have a conflict, there's a goal. You know what the goal is? And don't say to win. <laughs> the goal is not to win the fight. The goal is to win a friend. If one of you wins the fight, you both lost. If you win the friendship, you've won. It's not to win a fight, it's to win a friend. So it is true. You can walk hand in hand without seeing eye to eye. It happens all the time in good, solid, mature marriages. But you have to resolve conflict. So the conflict gets resolved. Chapter 7 and 8 is about committed romance. Love matures. It's a romance based, romance based on commitment rather than hormones or a temporary feeling. Uh, we don't know, but perhaps this is a year or so after the honeymoon. Um, she, in chapter 8, verse 6, has set a seal upon your heart, a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a, mo a most vehement flame. That could indicate what the problem was of the conflict. Uh, verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, nor can floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. In other words, it's worth whatever you have to pay to uh, engender love, resolve the conflict, and, and she's in, in that poetic way saying, let me be your most prized possession. Let our love be your most prized possession, your treasured prize. Verse 10, I am a wall, my breasts are like towers, and I become in his eyes as one who found peace. 
Again, she's kept herself for him through that conflict. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. Perhaps that's the one that her family uh, rented and leased and she worked in. He leased the vineyard to keepers. That could be her family. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard, that's her own body, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. So Solomon, you have great wealth. All I have to give is me. And I give all of me to you. That, that's her way of saying that. Look at verse 14. We're ending the book on time. Make haste, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. She wants him. She longed for him in their courtship. She longs for him with the same intensity in their marriage relationship. Getting married is easy. Staying married is more difficult. Staying happily married for a lifetime is considered among the fine arts. Easiest thing in the world, plan a wedding, get married. Hardest thing, stay married. Harder yet, stay happily married. Takes work. Takes conflict resolution. Now there is a corollary. Though it's not about Christ in the church, there is a corollary. And just like she says, oh, I long for my groom, and I long for my groom to return. That's our refrain, is it not? Um, she says, make haste, my beloved. That's what she says in verse 14, last verse of the book. Make haste, my beloved. Hurry up. Come back. Last book of the Bible, chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We say, oh Lord, come quickly. The bride awaiting the bridegroom. I want to con conclude with something that Dr. H.A. Ironside, Harry Ironside, who many of you do not know or have heard of, but some of you have, he was a pastor. He pastored the Moody Church in Chicago, pastored the Salvation Army churches before that, uh, wrote books, commentaries, etc., said this about the book. He sums up the whole book, I think, nicely. King Solomon had a vineyard in the hill country of Ephraim, 50 miles north of Jerusalem. He lent it out to keepers, consisting of a mother, two sons, and a daughter, the Shulamite. The daughter was a Cinderella of the family, naturally beautiful but unnoticed. Her brothers were likely half-brothers. They made her work very hard tending the vineyards so that she had little opportunity to care for her personal appearance. She pruned the vines and set traps for the little foxes. She also kept the flocks. Being out in the open so much, she had a deep tan. One day a handsome stranger came to the vineyard. It was Solomon disguised. He showed an interest in her, and she became embarrassed concerning her personal appearance. She took him for a shepherd and asked about his flocks. He answered evasively, but also spoke loving words to her and promised rich gifts for the future. He won her heart and left with the promise that someday he would return. She dreamed of him at night and sometimes thought he was near. Finally, he did return in all his kingly splendor to make her his bride. He beautifully summed up the whole book. Then he said this, This prefigures Christ, who came first as shepherd and won his bride, and later he will return as king, and then will be consummated the marriage of the Lamb. I love that corollary.
Though the book didn't have that in its original intent, I think we can retrospectively look back safely and go, I see the corollary. I see the fit. And all I know is like, like the bride, I say, oh Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Father, that's what we end with. We end with our heart's cry, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, the longer we live in this world, and we hear the unsympathetic cries of people around us, the world around us. We pray that you would help us keep ourselves for you. As we opened up praying for marriages, we now pray for a spiritual fidelity among those of us who are believers, that we would be faithful and true to you our great bridegroom, Jesus Christ. May we be a bride without blemish until the day you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Skip Heitzig of Calvary Church. For more resources, visit calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from the Bible from 30,000 Feet.